Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. I'm Damon, and this is episode 47, Peter the Great, part 2. So last time out, we got the Peter the Great ball rolling by taking a look at his early life between 1672, when he was born, and 1696, when he became Russia's sole leader, or Tsar. This week, we're going to be covering four items, and those are... A short recap of last week's episode, just so we know where we all are. Peter's ambitions and strategic aims. The Synod, or Jolly Company, in a bit more detail. And then finally, the Azov campaign against the Ottoman Empire. And just so you know, my main sources for this episode are Simon Seabag Montefiore's The Romanovs, which I've mentioned before and is brilliant. And then the equally brilliant Peter the Great by Robert Massey, which I haven't mentioned before. Some of you probably noticed at the end of the last episode that I mentioned that we would be covering a trip that the Tsar would make in 1697. Well, unfortunately, that is going to have to be delayed until next time. But trust me, it will be worth the wait. Okay, so today's agenda isn't going to move us too much further forward in terms of actual years, but there is more than enough to pack in, so no messages or promotional spiel this week. Let's just get strapped in and do some history of Russia. So, a short recap then. What do we know about Peter the Great thus far? Well, he was tall, 6 foot 7 inches or 2 metres, but... And I didn't cover this last time. For such a tall man, he had noticeably small hands and feet, narrow shoulders, and a smallish head. Whilst he was in no way an intellectual, he was quick-witted, streetwise, intelligent, inquisitive, and restless. He loved gadgets, everything nautical, and seemingly everything European. 
and he hated all kinds of convention, formality and discipline. His childhood had been volatile and had been lived out against the sometimes violent but always stressful background of the miloslavsky Navishkin power struggle. And I mentioned in, in the last episode that Peter suffered from nervous tics, tremors and seizures, and maybe epilepsy, and that these symptoms had potentially started at around the time of the Streltsy Revolt in 1682, when Peter was 10 years old. Well, based on what I've since read, it would appear that the Tsar's symptoms were all down to either a bout of severe encephalitis, uh, inflammation of the brain, which he suffered in 1693, or were caused by severe alcohol poisoning stroke withdrawal symptoms. Which leads us rather nicely on to the fact that Peter was into his vices, and in particular, drinking to excess, and that his closest friends were of a similar disposition, and more of that later. We know that he was married and had a son and heir, Alexei, but that he pretty much ignored his wife most of the time, and he also had a German mistress, Anna Mons. And then finally, Natalia, his mother, and Ivan, his half-brother, are now both dead, and Peter is in complete control of the Russian state. What we don't know, because I haven't mentioned it yet, is that there were other sides to Peter's character, good and bad sides, and we'll cover the bad a bit later in the episode. But that actually, when he wasn't living life to excess, he had some pretty good, serious ideas about Russia's future. So what were those ideas? Well, the first thing to mention is that whilst he had no concrete plans in place, at this point in time, the Tsar did have three interrelated ambitions or goals. And those were, number one, the establishment of a Russian presence on the Black Sea to the south, which would inevitably mean putting the Ottomans' noses out of joint. Number two, the establishment of a Russian presence on the Baltic Sea to the north stroke northwest, which would inevitably mean upsetting the Swedes. And then finally, number three, the establishment of Russia as a major European power. Now, Peter realised that to achieve the first two of those ambitions, he would need to broaden his knowledge and expertise and then invest time and money in preparing proper foundations mainly because he would need an army that could deliver, and more importantly, Russia would need a navy. Naval presence on the Black and Baltic Seas, though, could only go some of the way to achieving the overarching goal of Russia becoming a major European power. To satisfy that aim would need wholesale change and reform of every aspect of government, and perhaps, more crucially, would require a sea change in the mindsets and attitudes of the Orthodox Church, the nobility, the boyars, and even, perhaps, the Russian people. And Peter's approach to all of this over the coming years was to be disjointed and slightly haphazard. There never was an overall strategic master plan, rather a series of trial and error initiatives or chance interventions, some of which worked, some of which didn't. But the Tsar never lost sight of his overall aim to drag Russia, mostly kicking and screaming, into the 18th century. 
But before we get there, we've got the small matter of who, apart from Peter, would be responsible for trying to turn these aims into reality. And we also need to take a look at the Tsar's darker side. And both items lead us inevitably back to the all-joking, all-drunken synod of fools and jesters. But just before that, though, some perspective. So the late Rurikid and Romanov Tsars had governed the Russian state via five traditional bodies. You had the Boyarduma, the Zemsky Sabor, or the Assembly of the Land, the various ministries, or Prikhazes, the 13 regional administrative bodies, or Razriads, and then finally, the Russian Orthodox Church, through the office of the Patriarch, who, as we've seen, could be a force to be reckoned with, e.g. Nikon. Patriarch Joachim had died back in 1690, and his successor Adrian would have many run-ins with Peter before he died in 1700. Adrian, that is, and not Peter, and Peter abolished the Patriarchate. So in 1695, all of those bodies that I've just mentioned were still in place, apart from the Zemsky Sabor, which had last been called in 1653. And between them, they kept the wheels of state slowly turning most of the time. However, real power, as it tends to be under an autocracy, lay with the Tsar and whomever he favoured at any given point in time. Sophia had relied chiefly on Vasily Golitsyn. Fyodor and Alexei both had had Artemon Matveyev, and Peter, well, he had his synod, or jolly company. And in the last episode, I gave a brief description of the synod's activities and introduced three of its key players, Gordon, Lefort, and Menshikov. This week, we'll take a look at a few more of those key players and also see how Peter dealt with the people at his top table if he wasn't in the right mood. So first off, there was Fyodor Romadonovsky, who Peter called his Prince Caesar. Fyodor had two main roles. First, to attend all of the ceremonial events that Peter couldn't be bothered with. And then secondly, and perhaps a bit more darkly, he was chief of the Tsar's secret police. Then there was old Nikita Zotov, Peter's first tutor. He was elected to the position of Prince Pope and his main role was to lead the mockery of the Orthodox Church, as well as acting as Lefort's assistant master of ceremonies. And then we have Fyodor Golovin. Now, Golovin had served under Sofia's regime, and his claim to fame thus far was that he'd negotiated the Treaty of Neshinsk with Qing China back in 1689. Well, now he was Peter's Chancellor, and as we will soon see, sometime general stroke admiral, and he was probably the most trustworthy and loyal of all of the Russian members of the Jolly Party. And then finally, there was Boris Golitsyn, and he'd used up all of his political capital, pleading for his cousin Vasily's life, and so, at the moment, was slightly out of favour. All in all, there were around 200 members of the Synod who acted as Peter's right-hand men, supporting the Tsar's ideas and twisting arms to make sure that they would be implemented. 
laughing at all of his jokes, drinking as much as they could, and ridiculing all of the formal traditions of the Russian state. Sometimes, though, Peter could turn, and then it was time to disappear into the background and hope that someone else incurred the Tsar's wrath. You see, the Synod's fun and games weren't voluntary. You had to join in. For example, if you didn't drink enough, or you drank too slowly, or you tried to slip away early, your punishment would be to drown in one go a massive Ogadai Khan-sized glass of brandy. And if you don't remember that Ogadai reference, then maybe you want to go and check out or revisit episode 18, The Battle of the Kalka River, and there it will be explained. Back to the drinking, though, several Synod members would eventually die of alcoholism, and many of them, after a night's heavy drinking, were often just too ill to get out of bed the next day. And like his father Alexei, Peter was prone to physically assaulting anyone who disobeyed any of the numerous synod rules, and he once punched Menshikov so hard that it knocked him clean out. So the sort of long-term effect of all of this was that inevitably the games and japes that everyone had to join in with stopped being fun, and they started to become humiliating rituals that had to be endured with a smile on one's face. And of course, Peter knew what he was doing. Like Stalin would do, mainly after World War II, he used drink and humiliation to keep his ministers terrified, on their toes and off balance, and fighting either amongst themselves or for the Tsar's attention. Anyway, we'll leave the not-so-jolly company there, because Peter had decided that he needed to flex his muscles on the battlefield in order to achieve one of his ambitions. Russia's first attempt to establish itself on the Black Sea, the Azov Campaign of 1695-1696, epitomised the Tsar's overall approach to things. Preparations for the attack on Turkish territory had started back in 1694, with a series of military exercises and a couple of further sailing trips to Arkhangelsk. And by the early winter of 1695, everything appeared to be in place. There were to be two main strategic targets. The settlement of Azov, which was located a few miles upstream from where the Don River entered the Sea of Azov, which in turn was a small northern extension of the Black Sea, and two forts which guarded the mouth of the Dnieper River on the Black Sea proper. For the Azov Theatre, a force was put together consisting of Peter's two former play regiments, now the full guards regiments, the Preobrazhensky and the Semyonovsky, plus a contingent of Streltsy. And this army was to be split into three and commanded by Lefort, Gordon and Golovin. Peter, however, would have general oversight of the campaign. For the attack on the Turkish forts on the Dnieper River, a much larger force consisting of peasant and serf levies, led by Russian commanders, was to be used. The secondary aim of this larger army was to act as a magnet for the Sultan's forces, allowing Peter to sneak into Azov with his smaller force and reap all the glory. However, 
things didn't quite work out as planned. The smaller force laid siege to Azov, but then realised that the Ottomans could resupply the fort at will from the sea. Then the foreign commanders started bickering. A Dutch sailor, Jakob Jensen, who had full knowledge of the Russian army, army's plans, defected to the Ottomans, and, always a dangerous sign, the Strelsi started to get restless. Peter, though, decided to go all in and, ignoring Gordon's advice, went for an all-out attack on the Ottoman positions, which failed disastrously, leading to a full-scale retreat, which didn't stop until it had slunk all the way back to Moscow. Ironically, though, this didn't stop Peter from trying to claim that the whole thing had been a major success, a la Sofia and Golitsyn. Meanwhile, the Russian-led conscript army achieved its aims with a minimum of fuss, something that must have deeply annoyed and embarrassed the Tsar and his foreign generals. Anyway, as modern-day politicians are prone to telling us, lessons have to be learned, and so Peter decided to have another crack at taking Azov, but this time with boats of his own. But the problem was that Peter didn't have any boats of his own. So, during the winter of 1695-96, a huge operation was set up at Voronezh near the Don River, but 300 miles from the actual sea, for security reasons, and thousands of serfs and peasants, supplemented by smaller numbers of both Russian artisans and foreign shipwrights, were put to work building all manner of barges, boats and galleys. In May 1696, the whole flotilla, and sorry to stop here, but flotilla is one of my all-time favourite words, was transported down the Don River, and on board the barges was a much larger army than had been used for the first attempt, and this time it was under a Russian commander, the boyar Alexei Sheen, or Shein, although Peter and Lefort were also both physically present. And this time, everything did go to plan. The galleys were able to bypass Azov and block Turkish access, and when the attack eventually came, the Ottomans realised that the game was up and agreed to surrender. And poor old Jakob Jensen, the defector, was returned to the Russians in chains. He was later tortured to death, by the way, just in case you were wondering. So, Russia had a navy and eventually, after a false start, finally had a presence on the Black Sea. Well, not really. You could hardly class a few barges and galleys as a navy. Plus, Russia had only gained access to the Sea of Azov. Turkish forts and guns still guarded the entrance to the Black Sea proper. And anyway, in a few years' time, both Azov and the Dnieper forts would be back in Turkish hands, albeit temporarily. So, Peter, realising that the Azov campaign was just the start, and not long after he had led the victorious army back through the streets of Moscow, this time in real triumph, went back to the drawing board. What he wanted next came as a shock and a surprise to the generals and the boyars, who were looking forward to a nice break and resting on their laurels, just like they had in the old days under previous Tsars. The Boyar Duma was summoned up to Preobrazhenskoye, and there Peter laid out his plans to build a proper navy, 
and crucially, told everyone who was going to fund the project. The state would pay for 10 of the ships, but the richest landowners and the largest monasteries each had to provide the money to build one ship. The shipyards at Voronezh were to be massively extended, and the number of foreign shipbuilding experts was to be significantly increased. And then a few weeks later came the real shock. Around 50 Russians, mainly the sons of rich landowning families, were to be sent abroad to Venice, England and the Netherlands to learn every aspect of not only how to build a ship, but also how to navigate and run a ship. The state would need sailors and officers, and Peter realised that most of these would need to be Russian. The trouble was that never before had Russian noblemen or their sons gone abroad. And we're not just talking about a few weeks or months. They were being asked to leave their families for at least a year to study and work hard in foreign lands, which were hundreds if not thousands of miles away, and where next to no one spoke Russian. That's a bit like asking me to drop everything and go to Japan and learn everything about quantum physics and then come back as an expert. But go they had to, and at their own expense. However, for some of them, it would be a positive, as after their time abroad, their profiles were enhanced, and a select few went on to serve as foreign ambassadors and government representatives within Russia. And in the years to follow, many more Russians, both rich and poor, were sent abroad, and the knowledge and attitudes they returned with would help Russia to slowly change and become more European in outlook. However, if all of this frenzied shipbuilding and foreign travel wasn't a big enough shock to the system, two weeks after the first group of Russians had departed, an announcement was made by a representative of the foreign ministry along the lines that the Tsar had decided to send Lefort and Golovin as his representatives on a great embassy to England, the Dutch states, the Holy Roman Empire, Venice and Rome. In all, some 250 people would accompany Lefort and Golovin, and amongst their number, so it was rumoured, would be Peter himself, all six foot seven inches of him travelling incognito. Okay, that's it for this week. Next time, there's only one subject to tackle, and that is, of course, the Tsar's 18-month trip to the West. But, and here's the rub, who was going to look after things when he was gone? And would the state, and therefore Peter's position within it, be safe? Anyway, until then, look after yourselves, stay safe, and I will speak to you all soon.